Rolex is one of those terms that people who are outside of the core audience, the general populace, it's a word that they know. Ferrari, Gucci, Rolex, they are such big brands that if you say Rolex has exploded, Gucci has melted, people will watch it in a broader sense and YouTube loves that. And if YouTube loves it, it will show it to as many people as possible. And that is the problem that I have with YouTube right now. Welcome to A Blog to Watch Weekly with a special guest host. It's the man with the hands, Andrew Morgan from Watchfinder. Together, the guys explore clickbait in the watch media world, while also reviewing the latest in budget GMTs and diamond set Casios, the new Seiko speed timer, and the billionaire's fidget spinner, the Cartier Pasha grill. Enjoy the show. Greetings and welcome to this week's A Blog to Watch Weekly. Bit of a different show this week. We have a guest host because Ariel, I'm not actually sure what he's doing, but he's doing something, which means he can't be here. So it's just myself and David. So we thought we need a third wheel. And I thought, well, who could we get? I thought, well, Ariel's got quite a recognisable voice. And then I remembered a little incident where our eyes met across a room, a room hosted by Ferdinand Bertoud, and we both spoke up and then we looked across at each other and said, I recognise that voice. So welcome to the show. A voice that also has a set of hands. It's unclear as to whether there's a body between the voice box and the hands. But welcome to the show, <laughs> all the way from Watchfinder. Welcome the man with the hands, Andrew. Andrew, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I remember that moment well. It was pure magic, if I recall. <laughs> it was. And I, I think we completely derailed the entire Ferdinand Bertou meeting. It was a strange scenario, like you say, where voices were recognised. Faces yeah. probably weren't. And then it was it was like one of those Disney films where people were going, oh, is that the... Oh, is that the... It was like Lady and the Tramp. It was like it was. when the bit of spaghetti between <laughs> us over the Ferdinand Bertoud display case in a really small room. And yes, we did in fact completely banjax that entire presentation because <laughs> we were both sat opposite each other as soon as we both realised who we both were. If that's not too funny a way of saying it, then uh, yeah, it kind of derailed the rest of the conversation. I think basically the guys in the room that were friends just kept speaking French to each other while we had a good old chat in English. David, how are you? Good, great. French guys speaking French is just standard operating procedure, no matter, you know, <laughs> what language anyone else may, might be speaking. I, I find it hilarious, you know, 10 years ago when I started at a blog to watch and attending these trade shows and especially events, and it would frequently happen that we would be having a conversation in English and someone would just casually switch to French. And I was like, I've already learned how to speak English, you know, since I'm Hungarian. I don't, I really don't want to learn how to speak French, no offense. I learned about enough French to get by on holiday and then between one holiday and the one next year I forget it all again so it's, it's a little bit of a revving at idle really and I never get any further than that we are going to start off by listening to a little it's a little complaint actually from Jake who is our social media manager so let's listen to Jake's voicemail message and then we'll have a chat Hey guys, it's Jake from the Blog to Watch team here. You've been talking about Rolex almost every week, and as I'm putting together these Instagram posts, I think typing Rolex is giving me early onset carpal tunnel. Is it clickbait? Does saying Rolex make a difference, or are we just drawing out a really special crowd of watch people? Okay, so Jake's a bit annoyed because he feels like he's getting carpal tunnel syndrome because of the number of times he has to type Rolex on both the social media and the show notes. Now, 
Andrew, you're you're not exactly shy to putting the word Rolex in the titles of your watchfinder videos. No. Nope. It's not an unusual thing to see, you know, an Omega video that just happens to have Rolex squeezed into the title or something that's got absolutely nothing to do with Rolex, but there's still Rolex in the title. And it has to be said, we too are also somewhat guilty of this. And, and that's because it actually does make a difference. So what difference do you observe when, from a video point of view, you stick a wee, a wee reference to the crown in the title? I'd love to do a little bit of story time, if I may, because I think there's a lot more context to this than, than perhaps people might realise. And it's been a very, very contentious thing. It's very, very tricky. So way back in 2016, 2017, when we first got started with the Watchfinder channel, it was a, a bit of a blue ocean, really. There weren't too many other people making videos on YouTube about watches. And the way YouTube worked as well meant that if you put a video out there about watches, people who like watches would find that video and they would watch it. It was, it was really quite straightforward. And that was something that we stuck with for many years, right up until coronavirus. Up until then, we were gaining around 500 subscribers a day, basically religiously. There was no deviation from that. The growth was so uniform and it was like, like a ticking clock. You could, you could set your watch to the growth of the channel. And then coronavirus happened. And for a number of different reasons, I didn't like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> One of them was just how YouTube basically completely panicked about how it needed to operate. The one good thing that came out of coronavirus for YouTube really was the fact that there were a number of people who had nothing to do and so they started creating channels and we really saw the growth of some uh, awesome channels on YouTube which I'm really really pleased to see. But as far as the broader audience went, well what you had was a situation where there were a bunch of displaced adults who are now working from home and working pretty late into the evening to try and keep up with the work. But then you also had a bunch of kids who weren't going to school anymore who are now spending their entire day watching YouTube. So YouTube completely changed what kinds of videos it was showing to what kind of audience. And for us particularly, that meant an overnight drop in views. Massively so. Right. And I, I don't know about you guys, but I definitely watched less YouTube going into lockdown. And it took a year, year and a bit to really find the routine again. And even now, I, I don't watch as, as much as I used yeah. to. So, long rambly story short, this meant that YouTube started to favour the kinds of things that appeal to younger people. Now, what I saw off the back of this change in audience is that... YouTube decided that the way that people wanted to be shown videos is via being a casual audience rather than a dedicated one. And, and what I mean by that is that if you have a channel and you put videos out there, the people who watch your videos first, who jump onto it first, are the people who are your core audience. They are the, the biggest fans. And if they watch the video, then your less strong fans will then be shown the video. But really now what it seems to be is that if you don't get a huge huge number of views from your core audience you just fall dead flat. YouTube just stops showing it to people. You have to get a lot of views from your core audience for it to be shown to the casual viewers. So for us, most of our videos don't get shown to the casual YouTube audience because they're not interested to see what's happening with the latest Zenith. But those are the people who are watching our real versus fake videos or our ultra thin, thinnest watches in the world videos, but they aren't interested in the rest of it. So now we have this scenario where <sighs> you put a video out, some of the core audience watches it as they do to start off with, but less 
of the core plus one, if you like, audience are being shown that. So we find that people who would have loved to have seen a video who might then see it in a, a community post, they say, oh, I didn't see this video. This video wasn't shown to me. I had no idea you had made this video. I really enjoyed it, but it wasn't served to mm-hmm. me. So now we get to the, the, the meat <laughs> of the point, finally. Rolex. Rolex is one of those terms that people who are outside of the core audience, the general populace, it's a word that they know. Ferrari, Gucci, Rolex, they are such big brands that if you say Rolex has exploded, Gucci has melted, people will watch it in a broader sense and YouTube loves that. And if YouTube loves it, it will show it to as many people as possible. And that is the problem that I have with YouTube right now. Because I want to make videos that are for the people who love the videos. Of course I do. But I also want people to watch it and for the channel not to fail completely. So, I mean, answers on a postcard, please. What do you guys think that we should be doing well interestingly we put this show out on two different channels so what we thought what i thought Mm. we'd do is for this particular show we're going to put it out with two different titles we'll try and make one as clickbaity as possible i quite like the idea of rolex ferrari and gucci explode (laughs) or is this just clickbait and then we'll see what difference it makes because we get the same kind of stats as you do we see how many thousand people download episodes and how much of it they listen to etc etc so it would be interesting to do the experiment so what david in your world in your mind would be the most clickbaity title we could come up with ah yeah it would have to be something rolex related uh and ferrari apparently so rolex joined ferrari and then went bust Uh, yeah (laughs) something like that Ferrari takes over the entire watch industry. And one of these obnoxious O faces, you know, that some people use on their thumbnails, or maybe like 10 of those, and some large text over the thumbnail and whatever else to make it as clickbaity as humanly possible to burn down all the, like, YouTube servers and algorithms and everything else. Maybe that would work. And an explosion in the background. So, yeah, Ferrari to buy Rolex rumor. Oh, yeah. Rumor. (laughs) Make it a rumor. That's a good one. So that you can follow up with another one. Allegedly. Ferrari to buy Rolex rumor allegedly. We'll put allegedly in really small writing (laughs) at the end just to protect us. Yeah. I actually find clickbait incredibly fascinating because it really speaks a lot to human psychology call this nerd level stuff and I I appreciate the scientific method approach to testing the two different (laughs) titles. I don't think anyone will ever have actually tested it before. (laughs) But it really boils down to the fact that as human beings, we are kind of eminently hackable. And it's yeah. it's, it's fun to talk about clickbait, but actually um, there's a really great video by a, a science YouTuber called Veritasium about clickbait and how yeah, unreasonably yeah. effective it is. And he speaks to some of this nature of kind of the evolutionary sense as to why clickbait is so popular and generally why entertainment is popular. So from what I understand, if you go back to our kind of caveman brain, we have evolved hey, over hold time. On, hold on, hold on a second. Are you about to tell me that someone was like doing wrist shots in the cave and was writing <laughs> Rolex on the wall? <laughs> it all started. If they did, we would have invented fire a, a lot sooner. <laughs> we would have evolved a lot quicker. But, uh, but of course, you can imagine that if humans weren't governed by the feel-good squelchiness in their brain, nobody would have left the cave to take any risks or do anything and we all would have died out so yeah we we have like a an intrinsic feel good feeling that happens when something occurs and 
we have as a species kind of supplanted actually going out there and doing things with telling stories we we get a vicarious feeling of of goodness from a, a story well told our brain can't tell the difference between something that we have experienced and something that someone else has experienced that has been played back and this is what things like instagram and stuff like that really really feed on is that vicarious enjoyment our brains just aren't clever enough to tell the difference and the same is true of clickbait it seeds a question in your brain that you just have to answer because you know that answering that question will yield like a dopamine reward and the success of clickbait is just down to how likely a person is able to answer the question without watching the video so for example if you said rolex blows up its own factory someone might think well that doesn't sound true i don't think that's true and they've answered their own question but if you said luxury conglomerate buys ferrari and rolex or you know unnamed saudi bidder buys rolex something like that that could possibly be true there's something left on the table there that you have to which saudi why what are they planning on doing with it? <laughs> it starts to sow seeds of, of a narrative that you create yourself and you want to find the end of that narrative to get that dopamine hit. The wider reaching that dopamine hit can have an effect, the more effective the clickbait is. So, for example, you know something I was told a very, very long time ago by YouTube was... Whatever you do, you need to have your face. People respond to other people. And so it's why you see these videos out there. And it's just, the title will be, I can't believe she's 21 already. And there'll be a picture <laughs> of a person on there. And it'll have 25 million views. Because yeah. you, there's just something so evolutionary, so basic that hooks your brain in and makes you want to watch. And I, I, I find that absolutely fascinating because we think we're pretty smart us humans but actually we're just a collection of cells that can be poked and prodded into submission yeah we're talking about you Very nico true. we know it's you <laughs> i mean it is it is i mean take nico uh who was on uh, superlative a few weeks ago who i think has just overtaken yourselves as the biggest not not to rub it in in any way shape or form obviously andrew <laughs> I, I, d- I did see a very nice congratulatory post from watchfinder to nico's channel indeed but there is a channel that is vastly driven by personality versus your channel which is driven by personality but in a very different way but is more driven by facts and highest quality photography and the things you would think would sell. You know, your brain that thinks we're all really clever, as you suggest, would think, yes, what I need is high quality, good information. When it turns out what you actually need to do is to jump up and down and shout a lot and that that (laughs) actually gets you just as many views and just as much growth. But it's a different type of audience, isn't it? So one appreciates calmness and beautiful uh, videography, and then the other one, you know, resonates or uh, responds better to to the lack of the the, uh, the the complete lack of calmness, so to speak, right? And that's okay. And this this is what we're talking about with a, a core focused audience versus a casual one. A core focused audience is one that is invested. I mean, believe it or not, but these days, especially with oh, I don't want to sound like a, a granddad, but these days, younger audiences are finding it harder and harder to commit attention to longer format videos. Shorter yeah. format videos, it's a cyclic thing. There was a time when 
adults would say to kids, God, oh, you're reading books again, are you? Oh, God, so <laughs> lazy. Why don't you spin this hoop with a stick instead? The same is true of every generation. There is a new form of media that's easier to digest, which makes the older one harder. And I, I personally feel this in watching TV makes books harder to read. Watching YouTube makes films harder to watch. You have to actually kind of dedicate attention and effort into focusing. So when you're a casual audience member and you're watching Mr. Beast throws money at a homeless man, you, you can watch <laughs> that whilst also kind of like browsing Instagram as well and just generally half focusing. You don't have to put as much effort in. So that means if you need to put less effort into it, more people can watch it and gain from it. Both Nico and Mr. Beast both subscribe to the same principles. They're both very, very clever. They're both very much after casual audiences. And they know that, like, like in filmmaking, you have story beats, but in a 10-minute video, you almost have microsecond beats every three seconds you need to cut. You need to change the topic every 10 seconds. You need to set up the entire premise in the first five seconds and you need to deliver on that. You need to change the pace. I saw a fascinating interview with Mr. Beast about how he produces his content and how refined it is. Like sugar is in the kinds of treats that many, many people eat, the videos <laughs> have that same saccharine effect. It yeah. just needs to grab hold and never let go. Whereas if you're invested into something like a topic, like personally for me, I, I love um, astrophotography. Most people could not give less of a stuff about astrophotography. It's a very nerdy, very technical, very boring topic on the face of it, much more so than watches could ever be. But when you're invested in it, you are there willing to hoover up any last piece of information from anyone who will share it, and you will invest that time and brain power into trying to uh, <laughs> understand why your piece of equipment isn't working properly. And that's, that's the big difference. You get a big audience by... By reaching out. We will see what the word Rolex does to this, to what extent we can identify the algorithm versus people just being really interested in the topic. I quite like the idea of Rolex factory in meltdown, Ferrari steps in to assist, allegedly, <laughs> as a title. I like that. You have to keep it believable. You have to keep it believable. Although Rolex doesn't have a share price, so we can't actually do anything that would affect the share price. They do have lawyers, though. So that's probably okay. So they do have, yeah, they definitely have lawyers. <laughs> yeah, right. Here's a title for you The Legal Trick Solicitors Hate that gets you out of any legal situation. If you put a question mark at the end of it, you're just asking the question. You're not making a statement. <laughs> Do like the Radio Caroline trick and publish the podcast from a boat in the middle of the Atlantic. Yeah, we are recording this on board HMS Elizabeth out in the channel, equidistant between France and England. <laughs> so if you want to come at us, you'd come at us in French and none of us speak French. So good luck. What's the name of that little island? Probably had cannons on it at some stage during the Napoleonic Wars or something. But there's a, there's a guy... A little team of people that keep on trying to make it an independent country. I'm sure it's somewhere between England and France. Before before we get too lost in this, I feel like maritime law is the, is the easiest way to get our rear ends whooped. Uh, you know, royally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they would just settle it with cannonballs, I afraid, I'm afraid. So let, let's say in Scotland where it's nice and expensive, okay? Take it from there. Okay, we're staying in Scotland. Good stuff. So that kind of leads us on to another voicemail message. I promise we will get to watches at some stage, but one uh, particular area which is important to both of us is Instagram. We have a little message from Don Rogan, which I'm going to play now, and do go to the show notes to see the picture of the image that he is talking about. And this is him talking about how wrist rolls are now 
the thing that you need to produce and how he's doing it. Hi, Rick, David, and Ariel. Big fan of ABTW, the site, YouTube channel, and the pods. Hey, and a special thank you to Ariel for doing the streams of his watch collection during the early days of the pandemic. I was really touched by that. After listening to Omer's question last week and the discussion around Instagram's pursuit or recognition of more video content, became keenly aware of the amount of reels showing up in my feed with a particular frequency of the wrist watch roll reel. Embracing the algorithm, I was able to develop a device to pump out my own reels. Turns out all you need is a bench clamp, toilet snake, and a fake hand. Anyway, thanks again for all your efforts and looking forward to more great content. Don's got a way of producing wrist rolls. Do you remember Terahawks, Andrew? Oh, wow. You've just given me one of those sort of brain flashbacks, <laughs> and I don't know what it is. Well, you, you've <laughs> clickbaited me. Hang on, I'm going to have to I have Google clickbaited it. you. There you go. So, Rolex Factory in Meltdown, question mark, do you remember Terahawks? Oh, <laughs> is man. Is title. I'm just looking at it now. This is horrifying. There was a character, Zelda, and it looks like Don has found the hand from the puppet that was Zelda to do his wrist rolls. So the question kind of, which sort of relates back, if Instagram, because two of the watches we have this week to talk about are Carty, to what extent has Rolex become clickbait? Kind of which came first? If it had been 50 years ago, would it have been Rolex? If it hadn't been Instagram, would Rolex be a clickbait title for YouTube still? Or would it be a lot more kind of, could it have been Carty had it been a number of years ago? What comes first? Which creates the beast that becomes the dominant hashtag, if you like, in the watch world? Well, I really think that Rolex and the story of Rolex to where we get to now is very, very serendipitous. There's a a lot of clever thinking that's happened within that brand right since founding in 1905 and then a lot of luck as well that's happened in between times that's just been the perfect snowballing effect because when you look at the rest of the industry you see ups and you see downs especially downs sort of through the 70s and 80s with the quartz crisis but with Rolex you just there was never any of that and and I think really being founded much later than a lot of these brands and having to make up ground you could hardly call them scrappy now but back in the day if you like there was such a scrappy fighter that they had to take every opportunity they could to make their brand successful and having that approach it was just the right side of when marketing really became a thing because brands like Breitling and Omega and things like that they didn't really set up with this idea that they needed to be a brand it was a guy who created a factory that made watches and most of the time the watches either had no branding the branding of the owner the branding of the jewelry store that sold them and Rolex came in just, just at the time when that was starting to change, when ambassadors started to become a thing, when advertising really started to take hold, when the idea of making something for a reason that could be aspirational in nature became a thing. And, and they understood all of the things they needed to do that right from the beginning. So to suggest that if we rewrote history, Philip K. Dick style, to put a different brand in Rolex's place to become the popular thing on Instagram, now, I don't think it's just a case of Instagram popularising Rolex. I think it's Rolex has done a lot of legwork for over a century up to now to really make that happen. Yeah, I don't think it's just down to how much uh, Rolex spends on marketing. I think it's more about us people having an affection for choosing a brand that we all recognise. Like, what's the best car? And you, you learn when you are like five that, oh, it's a Ferrari. 
And then you start, maybe it's not the best, but we just like to pick favorites and like to recognize them as such and not change them too often, right? Because a Ferrari is a Ferrari and a Rolex is a Rolex. Even though Rolex is a great brand, it's not the best watch that has ever been made. It's great in a number of ways and not so great in a number of others. But the global community as such doesn't really care about its its values or the fact that it's not the most expensive watch in the world. Or the fact that, you know, whenever I tell friends or relatives or whatever and that, you know, Rolex makes around a million watches, they are shocked. Like, how many? You know, especially when Ferrari makes four, five, six thousand cars in a year. So compare six thousand cars to, you know, a million watches. That's that's a huge, huge, huge difference. So my point is, is that I think it's more about choosing a favorites and just being, you know, Rolex has put in the work to become a favorite, but they were also chosen as a favorite. It is an interesting point that for a luxury brand, they do actually make a heck of a lot of stuff. It is quite a good trick to be a luxury brand and make millions of the thing. It would be interesting to look at a selection of luxury brands and see how much of the luxury product they make and then compare to Rolex. You know, as you say, David, Ferrari make a few thousands. I don't know about things like Hermes and their handbags. Do they make a few thousand of them? Are they in the hundreds of thousands? I don't know what else you would consider the most well-known luxury brands in the world. But you do certainly associate luxury with lack of quantity and a million watches being sold. I mean, I, I think I said this a few weeks ago, I counted how many places there are in the world you can buy a Rolex and there's over 1,600 Rolex outlets in the world, which means if you wow. do the maths, they've got stock of about two or 300 watches a year. Now, there's not 1,600 places in the world you can buy a Ferrari or whatever the handbag is that's the, the latest thing. The Birkin, I believe. It's a really clever trick they've done to maintain this luxury brand while actually producing stuff on an industrial scale, using industrial processes. It's not like there's thousands of watchmakers there sitting hand-finishing everything. It is possibly just a completely unique company for our time and just has to be considered as an outlier in pretty much every conversation. Well, I'll, I'll take any opportunity I can to talk about cars. And, and I would say that if you're going to pitch <laughs> Rolex against any one ferrari isn't really it i would say ferrari is probably a, a closer comparator to say patek philippe because it's uh -huh. it has that kind of connoisseur level purchased by a handful of elite whereas if you take someone like porsche for example they make some very expensive cars but actually the bulk of their the volume and they do make a lot of volume is in things like the mccann and the kn and those cars also have waiting lists. Um, but people are queuing up because ultimately the product is very, very good. And, and here's where the comparison between Rolex and Porsche, I think, really hits home. Those brands are the benchmark of their industry. Whenever you see any review of a Ferrari or an, an Alpine or anything, it's always how does it compare to a Boxster, a Cayman, a 911, yeah. a KN? Because... Porsche just makes the best one. And and I think the really important part about the use of, of Rolex and stuff to uh, <laughs> to not let go of that particular point and the use of it on Instagram is that it grounds what you're saying. If you say, for example, wow, I've just reviewed this 
watch you've never heard of from a brand you've never heard of at a price point that is not what you expected well it's good compared to what that's that's what people mm. want to know they want to they want to have a common place to talk from and then go from there so oh the quality isn't as good as a rolex but the price is much better and now you have something a bit more tangible in your mind some of the work is done for you so i think that's really important and when a lot of people understand what Rolex is and they understand that it's very, very popular, using it as a segue into other conversations can really help them discover new things too. We have a message and this will touch on the kind of homogenization of what everybody likes. Are we all just becoming the same or are we so much more similar now than we maybe were 10 years ago in watch taste? So have a wee listen to this. This is Uncle Jun Yunwala and I'm from Kathmandu, Nepal. I regularly listen to your podcast while I cycle to work every day. And while I cycle to work, I wear my Zin U50 Tegumented. I've fallen down a couple of times while cycling and I have damaged the watch that I was wearing. So since then I decided that I should be wearing something much more rugged. The Zin U50 is the watch that I usually go to. I'm a watch enthusiast as well as a watch retailer present here in Nepal. Nepal, though, is a small but market, but it's a big, booming market. But even then, we have access to very limited brands here in Nepal. So the standard brands that are popular are the Rado, the Tissot, Omega and Rolexes. But even though the market is small, we have a lot of collectors and enthusiasts because of which we created a Nepali watch enthusiast community in 2020. And we have about 40 members in the community and we have regular meetups. Fortunately, this community allows us to check out each other's watches and explore a lot of brands that are not present here in Nepal. And we are able to touch and feel and play around with the watches, which is very much fun. And this helps in building a lot of beautiful and great friendships. Recently, we had uh, probably for the first time in Nepal, a Grand Seco event that we organized for the enthusiast community it was a big success and i'm sure more such uh, events will be organized for the community in the long term thank you again for having me on the show it was a pleasure chatting with you bye bye so you can check the show notes for the account if you're in nepal and you would like to go to a watch meetup get in touch with the show and we'll put you in touch if you happen to be out that neck of the woods and if you are running your own we watch group somewhere that's just your thing that you and your mates do and you'd like some new members and you like a bit of publicity then send us in a message to podcasts podcast with an s on it podcast at a blog to watch.com it just sends a wee voicemail message saying when you're meeting where you're going nobody that would want to steal any of your watches will be listening to this so it's okay to broadcast <laughs> where you are or just broadcast your instagram account and folk can dm you you can check them out there as to whether you want to invite them all into your group what i found interesting about this was just the idea that in Kathmandu they're also selling Zins and they had a Grand Seiko event there and all the rest of it and there's no reason to expect that they wouldn't have a Grand Seiko event in Kathmandu but it does just get you thinking are we all now just seeing exactly the same stuff is it really true that there now is nothing new under the sun David what do you think about changing tastes that you've witnessed since you got involved in watches is everyone now just chasing the same thing all i can think about is that i want to go grand seiko event in Kathmandu. that that's that's 
that's my top priority from now on. That must be a cool cool spot. Yeah, I think what we've been seeing with Grand Seiko is, is a great point, actually. If you look back at what the brand was recognized for and the community that recognized it, it was basically an underdog in all kinds of ways. And you always had to like explain it and what it is and how it works and Spring Drive and oh, it was Japan only and now it's like becoming more and more available. And now it has become, for better or worse, just a competitor to the big ones, right? So if, I, I'm not going to say or suggest that everyone knows what a Grand Seiko is but I feel like they have certainly come a very long way. I think diversity in terms of taste should be celebrated and if you want to read more about that I will put a shameless plug here for my review of my Grand Seiko Spring Drive Chronograph review that had those huge pushers and crazy design and I thought it was just the best thing ever and everyone's frowning upon it and oh you know it's like stupid pushers and stupid dial layout but it was just such a great watch in so many different ways. Long story short I celebrate Grand Seiko and I celebrate everyone who reaches out to something like that and buy watches for themselves and as long as you are buying a watch for your own entertainment and not for the acceptance of others then diversity will uh, will still exist and andrew what do you see of the channel you you must get messages from all over the world comments from places you've never been to or would like to go to and you're like oh i'd never really thought that they would be interested in german tegmented steel sports watches in the in the easter islands but it turns out they're just as interested there as they are in scotland at the risk of boring your listeners again with more of my pseudo psychology (laughs) i think there's as much to do with our perception of what people like as there is to do with what people actually like because there's there's all the talk about how the internet makes the world smaller and brings people together and and you see the opportunity for more and more people to learn about topics that otherwise they may not might not have had uh, access to i was talking to minhoon yu yesterday actually, as it happens, about him learning watchmaking in Korea and how he did that almost entirely via the internet and scraping together what he could find on YouTube, which was absolutely fascinating, and how that's brought his passion for Philippe Dufour into his work. Now, that, you could say, is part of that homogeny of watchmaking and tastes around the world. But, of course, he's injecting his own cultural take on it as well. But then also, I think that the way the internet works and the way it groups people together gives you a biased perception of what that homogeny actually looks like. We all end up being given impressions on things on Instagram and YouTube and stuff like that that it thinks that we will like based on other people who like the same things. And so we might miss out on some of the extra diversity that goes on, especially because some of that diversity will probably be stuff that we don't particularly like. I don't think you can paint any particular brush over the community and how it favours watches in particular. I really do think that it is, while we can't afford some of the watches we might like, it has generated a time where there is more choice than ever, more incredible watchmakers coming out, more different variation in price, more affordability even. So yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a ramble there for you, and I've completely forgotten what the original question was. <laughs> it was something about a homogeny. It was something about Rolex, yeah. factories melting down, quick bait, Porsche taking them right. over, all the rest yeah. of it. It was basically that. Well, thank you to uh, Anchor for the question all the way from Paul. and if you've got uh, something you'd like to send us an essay, do send it to podcast at ablogtowatch.com. Let's actually talk about some watches. 
first up today, a little article from a blog to watch entitled Actually Affordable Bottom Dollar GMT Watches. This is by Ripley. Now it's not, it's specifically about a couple of watches. It's kind of hangs around the new Seiko GMT. What do we think, first of all, of gmt watches are you a fan andrew and david i quite like a gmt especially since i'm based here in europe and most of the team is in la nine hours away and pre-covid with all the travel uh, going on it would also allow me to comfortably you know uh, just keep time of everyone back at home and not ring at at the wrong hour or whatever so i quite like a gmt i feel like it also adds just the right amount of complexity to a dial it doesn't make it as busy as a chronograph and its subdials do or a perpetual calendar but with, with that extra hand and with the bezel usually uh, the bezel with a 24-hour designation i feel like it creates a great looking watch that is just not over the top yet functional so um you i'm all for it andrew i'm going to have to admit here to being quite superficial when it comes to what watches do i like gmt watches when the hand looks cool i don't really go to enough places internationally <laughs> <laughs> Fair <laughs> to enough. warrant the functionality of them but I really really do like an, an extra hand oh that's an extra function that, that means extra coolness in your watch so I do like them I do very much like them and I also like Seiko so combine those two things together and it, in my book you've got a winner a little bit kind of baffled by the whole chucking the SKX name at it again that seems to come and go depending on which day you look at their catalogue but the watch itself <laughs> brilliant I hope they sell a million billion of them because if there's one thing the industry needs, it's great, high quality, affordable products that people who have more ordinary salaries can enjoy as well. I mean, I find my own taste changing. I think it is just kind of analysis paralysis about all the really expensive watches that actually you just go, you know what? See, just a Seiko GMT for a few hundred quid. That'll do. I don't need the Rolex Batman or whatever this expensive. This is actually going to give me just as much pleasure. It's going to allow me to keep a lot more money in my bank account. And equally few people are going to look at the Seiko GMT as the Rolex. Because I have only ever been in one conversation with one person in the whole of my watch life who's asked about something I was wearing. And that was because it was a Panerai and they're huge and you know not normal looking so you can kind of understand somebody inquiring as to what that is but the reality is nobody's other than a watch geek is going to be looking at your rolex and actually i think if you walked into a watch meetup right now with this seiko more people would be interested in this seiko gmt than any other ten thousand pound gmt that you happen to wander in with so i I think seiko have got an absolute home run here i think this will run for a very long time and it will be interesting i think is the article propositions to what happens with this watch movement because if they make it available to independent brands and micro brands to use to also produce a a gmt watches then i think we're going to see a bit of a burst in different kind of designs and interpretations as to how you use a gmt hand uh, on on a cheaper for watch it'll be interesting to see and the world timer the digital world timer which is just a classic world timer casio digital watch the number of watch geeks i see wearing this is enormous it's just the little world map on it it's just what your watch needs all watches need a little world map on it <laughs> so yeah go and check out go and check it out what is the least expensive watch andrew that you've got that you wear regularly my least expensive watch isn't one that i wear but it's probably the one that I admire the most, and that's my Hamilton Railroad Pocket Watch. 
All right. Because it cost me £250. That's, I don't know, $300? I mean, it's, it's not the most attractive thing in the world. It's got this kind of knobbly bezel and lines and things like that and some blued hands, but they're very, very dark, almost black. But the movement in it, for 250 quid, this thing is incredible. It, I'm looking at it right now, actually, and it, it's just a beautiful thing, and it's big enough that I can actually see as well. As I as I venture towards my 40s and my eyes grow tired and my bones grow fragile and weak, I can actually look at it and go, wow, that's cool watchmaking. 250 quid. So we're talking kind of the price of, uh, maybe not the, the Seiko GMT, but a, a Seiko 5. For a piece of historic watchmaking made by an incredibly well-revered brand that established some of the industrial processes that the Swiss watch industry uses, uses today made for mm. the industrialization of america for 250 pounds if that's not a good answer to your question i don't know what is <laughs> <laughs> david the cheapest watch you would wear or admire the most that you own? i've been wearing i just finished writing up the article about what i believe to be the cheapest factory diamond set uh, watch ever which is a casio ca something or another i will have to look it up and uh, it retails for around 70 dollars but you can pick it up for around 35 you know the, the diamond that with actual diamonds? There are actual two, two diamonds uh, in the front of the watch. Uh, and you actually get a little certificate in the box. I don't know where I put mine. But it, it actually says, like, natural diamonds. And if you go to Casio.com, it actually says that it's from UNICEF certified sources and whatever. I feel like these are diamonds of the quality that usually go on, like, drill bits or something like some, some sort of an industry <laughs> I use, probably. But technically, they are diamonds and they are cut and whatever. And even the front glass, in this case, it is glass, is faceted like a diamond. So the front of the watch also has these little facets to mimic the shape of a diamond. And you get a really legible little display and a quartz movement with seven years of battery life, I should say. And again, the whole thing, you can pick it up on, on Amazon for like 35 bucks. <laughs> so I, I really like that watch a lot. <laughs> I think the idea that Casio should troll Patek and then all of yes. the new releases for the next year should put a little diamond at six o'clock <laughs> and sell it for 35 <laughs> yeah you know I, I, oh, I do entertain this this thought actually in the review so the review is not just about oh it has diamonds so it's great no it's there's more to it and I do entertain this this concept that what if Casio was actually uh, you know uh, out on a mission to mimic some of the big Swiss brands uh, I'm not sure if that happened but you know to find out more, you will have to check the article when it goes live. Excellent. Well, we'll look forward to that article coming out. Well, talking of cheaper watches, the great thing is you said something, and I don't know if this was just a, a Freudian slip. You said the word uh -huh. need. The great thing uh -huh. about affordable watches <laughs> is that you don't have hold to... On, hold on, hold on, hold on. I need to just go back online my couch because I feel I'm about to be psychoanalyzed. Hold on a sec until I get comfy. <laughs> right, okay, you may begin. The great thing about a cheaper watch is that you don't have to do that whole kind of self-convincing why you need it. Well, I, if I if I get this Rolex and it, and it goes up in value, well, yes, I've spent a lot of money, but that, no, I can do that. And, and you justify all the practical reasons why the decision makes sense from an objective perspective. Right. With a watch like the Casio and it's got some fun bits going on it's got the world mm -hmm. time and you, and you spend a $50 or however much it costs on it mm -hmm. you don't have to do that anymore you can just go oh if I wear that watch I'm going to feel like I'm in Thunderbirds and that's brilliant <laughs> and you get to enjoy it in kind of a, a more guilt-free way I suppose um, but even then, when you buy something expensive, I think it's important as well to note that you don't have to to convince yourself why you need it. If you want it and you can afford it and that's what you want to do, that's fine. That's fine. You only get to live once, don't you? So you might as well enjoy it. Good stuff. Yes, let's stop using the word need and just confess and admit <laughs> to ourselves we just want it. So there we go. 
excellent. We're going to talk about this watch that both myself, actually all three of us have handled this because all three of us were at Watches and Wonders. Mm-hmm. And this is the Cartier Pasha with removable grill. Now, the reality is that I'm just going to read from the comment section. Go-Kart Mozart. Uh, this is a cover watch from Cartier. They would probably make more money from spare parts for this watch than from the watch over its lifetime. Picture the scene. Banker on his way to work in London City, waiting for a train. A stranger asks what the date is. The banker has a look inwardly and detaches the grill so that he can read the date. Before he knows what's happened, someone grabs the grill from his hand and they do a runner. And then five minutes later on the train, he realises he's not worn the watch over the weekend. The watch has stopped, unscrews the crown cover to adjust the time and drops the crown as the train does a sudden lurch. The crown is lost in the carriage and like all London trains, it's totally ram-packed. 4K gone in the space of 10 minutes. So <laughs> have Cartier basically created a watch with built-in redundancy and <laughs> built in you're gonna have to keep on asking for spare parts because we're gonna lose this or is it just the ultimate fidget spinner (laughs) first of all i hope this very clumsy banker never handles any of my accounts (laughs) 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 but do you know what Uh, having handled that watch it's a gerald genta design if i recall i don't think the original pasha i've never seen any pictures of the you know the the pasha for the the pasha of marrakesh and i believe Uh this design is the based on the interpretation by Gerald Genter in 1985 or something. So does that mean this watch is going to be worth ridiculous amounts of money in the future? Who knows? But, 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 fidget spinner, you're absolutely right. The mechanism for taking off that grill is so satisfying. If you're going to lose it, if you're going to lose it, it's not because you've taken it off to read the time. It's because you keep pulling it off and putting it back on again, taking it off and putting it back on again. I know that if I was sitting at my desk with this, the watch would be on my wrist, I'd take the grill off, I'd insert my pencil or pen through the middle of the grill, and then I'd be spinning it around (laughs) my thumb on the end of the pencil, and then eventually it would get enough momentum to leave the end of the pencil and disappear into the nether reaches of my office. Yep. I wonder if you got enough rich people together, you could play that game where you used to toss the coins and see who would get closest to the wall. Oh, penny up. Yeah, penny up. <laughs> penny up with, with Carte Pasha Grills, I think is the new billionaire sport just waiting, waiting Absolutely. to happen. Yep. What did you think of this when you handled it, David? My recollections of this watch is just Ariel just laughing out loud at the other corner of the, <laughs> of the room. I look at him and he starts walking towards me and he says, can you imagine losing this? Like how easy it is? And just reaching out to the spare parts department. It does make me wonder how many watches they've made versus how many grills oh, they've made. Excellent do question. They, do they make two grills for every watch they make? Because they know they're going to get requests. Well, I've Probably. got a, a business proposition for, for Cartier, and that's not just to create replacement versions. I think they think what people are going to do is leave it on or take it off and leave it at home. But human humans are too too meddling to, to deal with that, aren't they? That, that, that thing is definitely coming off and on all day long. <laughs> but can you imagine? Oh, hello. We've re- we've, uh, we, Cartier, have just released a whole bunch of different accessory grills that you can replace the standard one with. Diamond mm. set, different metals perhaps kind of like uh, patterned and mottled and things like that, and you can buy a new one and update your Cartier Pasha year on year, like changing the strap out by changing the grill. Um, I'd like 50% on that idea, please, Cartier. 
I'm giving George Bamford a phone immediately after this and asking <laughs> if he can do a blacked out DLC. Or maybe it should be Cartier versus Casio and they should put some of their new diamond set uh, stuff into this. I also wonder, is this about the size? I'm just trying, it's probably about the size of a pound coin, isn't it? I wonder if they could create one that you could use in your shopping trolley. <laughs> so that you've at always Harrods. you've at Harrods you've yeah. always got you've always got the thing that you need to get the shopping trolley or the luggage trolley from the airport just fastened to your watch. I mean, that's a, that's a great idea. It's a com- technically that would be a complication, and GPHG could have their own category for it. <laughs> I also think perhaps maybe they should offer an accessory that you know when you go to the bank and they don't want you to steal their pens so they have a little <laughs> chain that attaches the pen yes. you get a little gold kind of pocket watch style chain that attaches from the crown hook to the the grill itself and so if you do take it off and you drop it you never lose it do you know what idiot mittens are? oh with a piece of string yeah you get two gloves and they're connected by a piece of string that goes round your back so you could like double wrist and have the 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 <laughs> have the grill connected by a piece of string to one, and you could change it rounds. I mean, the crown is already hanging on a little little chain, so you could just you could just use the chain uh, used for the crown. I mean, it's a pasha, right? So the crown is already hanging off a chain. Just extend that, or use the same little hook, and then that's it. So, what do we actually think of the watch? I, I do remember trying it on and thinking it's a lovely watch. There's no doubt about it. It's entirely stupid and superfluous, but it doesn't mean that it's not a lovely watch. That's what luxury is, surely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If we're going to level this thing as being entirely superfluous, then <laughs> we've got a lot of soul searching to do. That, that was that was the very essence of the Royal Oak, wasn't it? It was to be yeah. superfluous. It was to be needlessly luxurious and um, and different. I'm just ticking off our Royal Oak clickbait so I can now include Royal Oak <laughs> in the title. So that's fine. I, I also have written down here, make Rolex British again, just to appeal to that yeah, certain oh, yeah. listener that, yeah. that would that would buy into that title. So yeah, do like the Pasha. I, I love the fact that Carty think that this is just a thing that the world needs. Uh, and, <laughs> There's that word again. <laughs> uh, it needs. It's a. Well, I think. Yeah, yeah. You're right. It's completely pointless. But it would be really fun to find out uh, what what will be interesting for you guys at Watchfinders. How many of these you get in for trade with with and without the grill? You'll be able to do some sort of meta analysis that says what percentage of these watches you ever see for resale that don't have the grill. Yeah. I dare say you're probably right and that there'll be a varieties of different kinds of grills coming along ever ever so shortly. We'll, we'll, we'll put a copy of this onto a USB drive, put it in an envelope and post it to ourselves to make sure that you've got the, the rights on any royalties that come from them making uh, different varieties of grill for this. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're welcome. David mentioned some watches with some long legs in terms of the pushers. We have the longest of long-legged as Seiko debuted the Prospect Speed Timer, the SRQ043. I don't understand this watch because I've got one of the original five sports, one that's marked as being waterproof. It is simply one of the most comfortable watches i own it is a gorgeous watch why they think that this is a continuation of that line i don't understand it i i just don't get this watch i don't get the scale of it you're going to catch that on absolutely everything david have you seen one of these in the flesh 
No, I don't think I have. I, I just want to say that these pushers have absolutely nothing on the pushers on my uh, SBGC001. I mean, these are large, but those are like the actual real deal pushers. I haven't seen one of these, but what you just said about Seiko and, and how it's following up on its previous models is it's becoming a bit of a theme, really, uh, where, where at least for us outsiders, it feels sometimes like uh, Casio is confused by its own history or its own models and model naming essentially reference the the SKX. You know, sometimes it's here, sometimes it's gone, and then, you know, it's really difficult to keep track of what's going on when it comes to Seiko and its uh, historical references. Have you seen the TV series, it's on Amazon Prime, James May, he goes to, to Japan and... Um, yes. It's brilliant. I think it's probably just called James May Goes to Japan. <laughs> it may as well be. But the thing, the thing I loved most about that series is really starting to unpick how Japan is to, to us like a completely alien world. Like they do things so differently and it's absolutely fascinating. And I get the same vibes with Seiko. Like I absolutely love Seiko. Some of the watches they make are the best in the world. They have everything from $100 watches to $100,000 watches. It's, it's incredible what they can achieve. But sometimes you look at decisions they've made and you just scratch your head and think, I don't understand. I don't understand. Why so many different types of watches? Why this naming convention? Why have you changed it around? Why does the speed timer apply to the quartz version, which looks completely different, and this? Why are hmm. you releasing this as if it's a brand new model when there was one that looked very, very similar with a slightly different color dial last time? <laughs> and it leaves you... And that's before you even get to the actual product. Why is it so big? Why is it so expensive? Who is this for? <laughs> and I think Seiko's answer is, doesn't matter. They make so many different kinds of watches and have the ability to produce at such volume that someone somewhere will like it, and that's enough. <laughs> I mean, does this touch touch back to the earlier conversation about homogenization in that this just demonstrates that for us as Western Europeans, we look at this and go, this isn't for us. This just doesn't do our aesthetic. We've not grown into this kind of aesthetic yet with big pushers, but clearly this is a thing in Japan or somewhere else. Or as you say, has this just been made on the basis that it will sell to somebody? They maybe don't know who that somebody is, but it will sell somewhere. I think you're right because... In Europe and America, the idea of Grand Seiko costing thousands is only just something people are getting used to. The idea of spending that much money on a Seiko-branded product, lest we forget they had to remove the word Seiko from Grand Seiko products in order to help them sell. Because I, I personally think this is an attractive watch. I, I really like the big pusher look. I like it very much on the Longines Big Eye as well. The size is probably a little bit too big for me, so that's, that's less of my concern. But the... Uh, the Seiko for £3,500 feels more like a domestic decision to me. I see Seiko doing things like this, and in my own puny, naive brain, I think, ha, what do they know? Silly Seiko. They think that we want these things and they don't. But I, I wonder, they're just so big that they have the capability to test whatever it is they like, and they, they have the opportunity to take risks and chance things, because after a while... Grand Seiko watches won't be three to five grand anymore. They'll be seven, eight more. And Seiko will be three, five. A bit like how, here's the R word again, how Rolex has created and built up Tudor to fill in the gap behind it. I think that's what Seiko are doing here. They're just sowing the seeds for the idea of watches like this being a bit more expensive. They don't expect anyone to buy one, but it starts to mm. normalise that price point. And I wonder whether the recent shall we say, sticking above the parapet of the other Seiko brand, Orient Star, 
which seems to suddenly have started to become a bit of a media darling and is yep. certainly a much cheaper end is at the level that maybe Seiko was 10 years ago where you go and you spend 250 bucks on a chronograph you know you've got Creedor at the top end you've now got Grand Seiko and the entry price for that is certainly going up I mean there's a number of Seikos that are that are certainly sitting maybe alongside certain levels of Breitling now hmm. I mean this certainly is 3,200 euros you could get a Breitling for a few hundred euros more you know Seiko's starting to try and bat in the Omega Breitling and certainly the Tudor type of range of thing and then coming in behind them is Orient Star, which seems now to be the value proposition. I think it's just them getting the word out that that is a Seiko brand. So that folk go, all right, okay, if it's Seiko, then it's fine. You know, what is this thing, Orient Star, never heard of it. I, I agree with you, Andrew. Looks nice. I've no idea how this would wear with these pushers. It's certainly a nice looking watch. It'll certainly be well built. It'll be easy to service. It'll be supported all day long, but it's still a 3000 pound sequel chronograph <laughs> really at the is, end of it? the day thank you everyone for joining us it's been a bit of a different show thank you andrew to making it thus that has been great fun thank uh, you what have you got coming up in the world of watch finder in the next week or so oh let me have a quick look at the schedule because we, we schedule around a month in advance which means when the video comes out i go oh yeah we made that video I <laughs> <about> that. <laughs> let, me, let me guess let me guess let me guess why this Grand Seiko is better than any Rolex is the title of your next video. I don't think we have a Rolex title until the 24th of August. So it's, Ooh, it's wow. the, as of week. recording, this is the 16th. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, our next video is going to be about the Patek Philippe inline perpetual calendar, which is uh, a very fascinating fix to a problem that all perpetual calendars have, which is they are impossible to read. A uh, really awesome watch, which was loaned to us by a, a viewer, in fact. So oh, that'll right, be good. And, and of course, as well, shameless plug, I've uh, started my own channel too, which you can go yes, find you on YouTube. Search Andrew Morgan Watches. And uh, yeah, I'm just dabbling around with little conversations and musings that I have by myself in a very, very self-centred and egotistical way, probably. Well, I, th I think the world is waiting for the channel, which is you and me speaking about astronomy cars, watches, <laughs> like just the geekiest channel you've ever heard of that like literally three people and our mothers listen to. Uh, yeah. And that's about it. Uh, David, what have you got coming up? Well, I'm preparing, setting up meetings for Geneva Watch Days, which is happening. I'm traveling the next week, end of next week. So a lot of meetings and a lot of stuff to set up. It's funny because sometimes you have to like, it's two weeks away. And I emailed one of the bigger brands there. Uh, saying like, hey guys, you know, I see you're listed at the website, but I haven't really heard much from you. And is there anything going on? Oh yeah, we totally have like an embargo product presentation and a bunch of other stuff going on. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I asked. I mean, I'm sure they would have reached out in a week or so, but you know, it's just typically the kind of stuff that you want to make time for in your in your schedule. So yes, I saw that. I saw that email. It's like, okay, well done, big brand for contacting one of the biggest watch websites in the world. Yeah, <laughs> and going, yeah, you might want to publicize this. I'm, I'm sure they would have. I, I think if they are just finalizing it or whatever. I'm just saying we're really close to to the actual start yeah. of the event so so anyway we'll be there good stuff well thank you for joining us uh, do search out andrew morgan on instagram what is actually the best address to find you on andrew 
Oh, if you just search Andrew Morgan Watches, I'm sure you'll find me. Good stuff. You can find David at the usual places. You can find me at, at Rick TikTok. So thanks for joining us. And uh, join us again next week. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. <laughs>